Today's scripture reading will be John 20, 1 to 18. If you don't have a, a Bible with you today, you can find it on page 906 in your pew Bibles. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and, and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Turn it on. There that is. Good morning. There it is. There it is. Good to be with you all. Uh, let's jump straight into the word. Uh, let's jump straight into the word. Uh, let me ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we do 
Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that we have in him. Oh, we need him. We thank you that we have him. Father, we pray as we consider your word that you would fill us with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be abounding in hope. Lord, we ask that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, The last word on Jesus up to this point in John's gospel, I believe y'all covered last week. It was not online, so I couldn't double check, but I assume it was. Uh, Is that Jesus was laid in a tomb. Uh, So chapter 19, verse 42. We find that the Lord Jesus has died. Because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And there's much that's being said in that simple phrase, that Jesus has died and is in a tomb. What I mean by that is, like, just consider what's being said about Jesus with the naked eye and the natural mind that he just died and is laid in a tomb. Uh, Was it not the accusation that he's a liar? All the stuff this dude said, talking about he's the resurrection and the life, and he's died, and he's in a tomb. That he was, in fact, someone else than he claimed to be, that he's the son of God. He can walk on water. He can't walk on death. That he was a fraud. That he was a villain, maybe even a criminal. That he deserved the death he was dying. Ultimately, the last things that seem to be being said about Jesus up to this point is that he was a sinner like everyone else because he died like everyone else. For the wages of sin is death. In Matthew 27, 39 through 43, We get a scene about what others are saying about Jesus at the point of his death. And they're saying these very accusations about him. Right? At those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads. I don't know if that's like a, I don't know exactly what that is. But wagging their heads. And this is what they were saying about him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. But we find he died and he was laid in a tomb. But God has the final word. It's a cheat code for life. God always has the final word. And the text says that God is always proven to be true. And every man who disagrees with him proven to be a liar. 
We see God's answer to these accusations don't go unaddressed. Just because it tarries a couple days doesn't mean that answer doesn't come. And when that answer comes, that answer comes with force and power and complete clarity. And we see it in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. There, God says something very theological about Jesus. He's saying something completely opposite to what's being said about Jesus. The statements being made by those, uh, said by those mere men on the day of his crucifixion. In the resurrection, God's clearing the air once and for all. In the resurrection, God is settling the score once and for all. In the resurrection, God is vindicating Jesus, his son, and saying, no, in fact, this is my son. No, in fact, this is the king in all bets recognized. That's why our verse starts. John 20, first day of the week. Mary Magdalene comes. She comes to the tomb early. While it's still dark, and y'all know those layers in John of darkness and light at this point, right? Darkness associated with people not getting it. Light shines in darkness and people start getting it. Well, we're told Mary shows up and it's dark, so we should know, okay, some people ain't going to be getting it. And this is exactly what we find. We're going to break this up in two, two sections. This is for you note takers. I'm not one, so this is the best I can do. First point is the evidence for the resurrection. Four points there. Second point is the effect that's to have on us. So the evidence of the resurrection, the effect it's to have on us. We say the evidence of the resurrection because here God wants us to know that the resurrection happened. He actually tells us this happened. It could have been in one sentence. Jesus was laid in the tomb, then he got out. That's not what God says. He gives us details. He gives us evidence so that we would know our faith is resting in something that had been testified and verified, and we're to join in in that solid confidence of what the people of God who were able to observe and believe about God's word were able to enjoy. Uh, the evidence of the resurrection. People have obviously accused the resurrection of being a myth. They will this Christmas. They will this Easter. The History Channel every year does the same thing. The body of Jesus and it's never found. They never find it. And they repackage a bunch of myths about it, uh, but all signs point to him. What you don't see the specialist, he's really, he was telling the truth. Uh, it's always a, a presupposition about the fact that it just can't be true. Therefore, it must be able to be explained because for 2,000 years, the body of the most important historical figure ever is just gone, and we can't find it. We must be able to explain it. God is sitting back saying, I told you so. And God has provided us evidence so that we would know some of what he knows, so that we can have confidence in what he says. And this is what John is laying out for us. This isn't so much a theological treatise of what the resurrection does, like you would get in 1 Corinthians 15, but rather this is proof for why we should believe it happened. And if you're familiar with John's gospel, he gets to that summary statement. Why do we have John's gospel? So that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in him. John's like, I got one aim, and I want you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in him. And right now, the big question mark is, but what do you do with the Son of God dying? John says, thank you for asking. He didn't stay dead. Start moving. 
dark morning. First piece of evidence. We have a missing body. We have a missing body. The body's gone. Mary gets there, and she sees that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2, she runs, excuse me, and goes to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who is John, who's writing this. We know this from the next chapter. And they said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. They took him. And you know, anytime somebody says they, you always be like, who is they? Who is this they? She doesn't know who the they is. She just knows the body's gone. The body was there. The body's gone. This, this might, because she's there as early, she might have been coming every day, as people in grief sometimes do. So she might have been coming every day since it happened. But we know she wasn't coming every day looking for a resurrection. Because if she was and the body was empty, it would have went different. <laughs> she would have went back like, yo, he's gone, gone. But no, she's coming and she's saying they took him. We don't know where he is. Somebody stole his body. And this sounds weird to us, but it was a thing. Uh, robbers would take bodies and take things that were valuable off them. The missing body, though, when rightly understood, is actually evidence of the resurrection. If Jesus did not stay dead, one thing you would hope to find is an empty tomb. They're blinded by grief. They're steeped in unbelief. So she's not thinking that. Mary, we're told, is indebted to Christ. In Luke 8, verse 2, we're told that he cast seven demons out of her. We can tell from the degree of her weeping. You had a deep degree of affection. Mary is just crying through the whole chapter. She's weeping. She's weeping. She's weeping. The angel's like, why are you weeping? Even Jesus says, why are you weeping? She had come to the tomb, again, not because she was looking for a resurrection, but probably out of grief and affection. And her first response is that she believes a robbery is more likely than a resurrection. That's still the case for many today, right? Skeptics insist on all kinds of narratives concerning the body of Jesus. These alternative narratives show or they stand on something diametrically opposed to what we find in God's word. They, they depend on a faulty theological conclusion about Jesus because if he's merely a man then of course we got to explain the resurrection or the missing body some kind of way other than a resurrection if he's just a human there must be a human explanation perhaps someone did steal him but in the background John's bringing this up because if he's telling the truth if he's God then what we're witnessing is what you would expect to witness if God died. You would expect God not to stay dead. Mary's thinking as a mere human here, because she is a mere human here and has a limited insight. She assumes the body has been stolen. She wasn't alone in this. We're told the disciples were not clear about the centrality of the resurrection for their life either. Look at verse 9. We're told up to this point they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And we'll get to that a little later. Jesus had previously clearly communicated to his disciples he was going to die and then rise from the dead. The scriptures testified that Christ would rise from the dead, and yet Mary doesn't go to that first. She has a momentary misunderstanding that many unbelieving people today still have. 
seeking to explain what can only be rightly understood supernaturally with completely human categories. Someone took him, but the missing body should have jogged that memory to what the scriptures had said, what her Lord had said, and it should have been evidence for her. We have another piece of evidence, though. Second piece of evidence was the remaining cloths. The body was taken, but there's still some remaining cloths, we're told. Verse 6 through 7, Peter and John race there. John gets there first. He lets us know that. <laughs> I think some of these are just historical facts that let us, you can, it just smells of history. This is stuff that doesn't amplify the story at all. Yeah, they told us, and we ran him. I ran him. But he lets us know he didn't go in first, and that's actually significant. But when they get there, he, they see linen cloths lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And what's all this evidence was actually enough to convince some. So if you look at verse 8, Peter isn't said to believe here, but the disciple whom Jesus loved, he sees it and believes. He's like, oh, snap, the linen cloths. Cloths are removed from the body, evidence the body wasn't just snatched and stolen. I've never stolen a dead body. I hope neither have you. I imagine that is messy. What you probably wouldn't do is take all the covering off the dead body first. Let's get this as gross as possible and then leave. If someone was going to take the body, it's better and cleaner to keep the body wrapped in the cloth. And this is only further reinforced that they weren't just snatching this off him because how the face cloth wasn't just piled up with the body cloth. We're told the face cloth was, was <laughs> nicely folded and set to the side. So someone was making their bed before they left. Robbers have always been hasty and messy. I don't know if you've ever had your car broken into. Come visit our church, the chances go up. <laughs> we, we've had our, our car broken into a lot of times, and one thing is consistent in all car breakthroughs that I've ever seen, and that is they are so messy, it's confusing how messy they are. You got registration stuff on the ceiling. They, your glove compartment's totally trashed. Napkins is in the trunk somehow. It's like they just flip through all your CDs. You don't want CDs. Why are you spreading them out around? They just spread everything out, flung apart, threw on the seat, middle of the console, opened up, it sloppily ravaged through. And you know why? Why don't robbers take their time to put your insurance card back in the sleeve? and pay? They're going to need the registration. Please keep it close. We don't want to mess them up. Because their concern is with not getting caught. They're stealing. Ain't nobody concerned with being polite. If they was being polite, they wouldn't be stealing. No, somebody wouldn't break into Jesus' tomb, unwrap his dead body, and say, before we leave, fold the head cloth. Put it to the side. Again, details, evidence. We have a third piece of evidence. Third piece of evidence of the resurrection was the witnesses. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall the thing be established. We see that this was witnessed by multiple witnesses. 
So in verse 3 through 8, we got Mary, we got Simon Peter, and the apostle John. And again, we, we have all the historical details about it. We have John, he gets to the tomb first, but we're told he stays outside. So we know John didn't go in and in remorse start folding up the linen cloths. Oh, I can't believe they did this to his head cloth because he didn't go in first. One thing that lets us know is, no, nobody tampered with the evidence. So yeah, he said, I got there first, but I waited. The first person in was Peter, and he saw what we all saw. Another interesting fact about the witnesses is you got Mary as the first witness. You might have heard this before, but if you were making up this history and making up this story, Mary would not be your key witness. I mean, you see this with our country. If somebody smoked a little weed in high school, they throw out everything they ever say. They could have witnessed a murder. Yeah, but he was high when he was 18. And they just use whatever they can to tear away somebody's legitimacy in court. You got Mary who has seven demons. You gonna listen to the demon girl? And on top of that, it was a woman. Mary couldn't be your key witness. She wouldn't be your star witness because in this culture, she wasn't allowed to be because she was a woman. So according to how things went at the time, they didn't allow a woman's testimony to be the primary test witness testimony. So if you're going to make this up, you would have changed this a lot. You would have had Mary get there after everybody, be less central to the narrative. But God has no problem telling it like it is because as he tells it, it actually is. But even they are not the only witnesses. After Peter and John leave to tell others, we're also told, according to verse 12, we got two celestial witnesses that show up. Two witnesses with no character flaws. You got two angels. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Some people make this an allusion to the Ark of the Covenant. It's conjecture. It's pleasant conjecture, though. But I think you got two witnesses who are sitting at the scene of a crime, and they're chilling. Uh, I fly on planes sometimes, and uh, every now and then, you can be on a plane, and the turbulence get a little crazy. And what happens is if you're not used to flying, even if you are used to flying, there's certain turbulence that makes you immediately start pulling out the phone to text everybody you love. You start holding the, you might hold your, <laughs> the person right next to you, I'm sorry, um, but you start freaking out. I had a, I had a, I had a brother who, who uh, traveled way more than me. One thing he told me, we were, we were on a flight once and it was getting shaky and I was looking at him and he was just chilling and I'm freaking out, I'm hyperventilating. I look at him and he said, look at the stewardess. I said, what you mean? He said, if the stewardess is chill, you can be chill. If they start tripping, that's when we all need to start tripping. <laughs> but if the stewardess is cool, who knows what happens on flights, this is what they do. If they chilling reading the magazine, you don't need to freak out. Similarly, you got Mary's here crying, you got two angels just, what are you crying about? So instead of her being like, <laughs> should I be crying? <laughs> like, angels, tell me what's going on. No, you have two angels. And their interaction isn't, isn't uh, shared, at least it is in other places in Scripture, where we're told that the angels said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. 
for he is risen. Come, see the place where he lay. So the angels know what's going on. We don't get that interaction here in John's gospel, but we do kind of get their tone. She's freaking out. They're not. The angels know what happened. They're not sharing in her confusion or bewilderment. They're not frantic about what has happened to their Lord. And their questions suggest to Mary, and that Mary, as a follower of Jesus, shouldn't be confused either. Why are you crying? Rather than correct her perspective, she simply recounts her concern. She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they are, where they've laid him. But it's not just Mary, not just Peter, not just John, not just two angels. We have another witness, and this is the individual in question. We're told Jesus is there. Now, you're looking for the one who's right there. Jesus is there as evidence of the resurrection. Having said that, she turns around, she sees Jesus standing, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. And we'll get into some of how that happens and how that unlocks. But here you have this, people were able to observe and testify that the data suggests that what God promised would happen did happen. Brings us to a fourth piece of, piece of, brings us to a fourth piece of evidence of the resurrection, and that is the scriptures. So all throughout this whole scene, you got Mary, she's frantic, Peter and John, they're frantic. John gets the cue once he sees the linen cloths. But we're given a little indication in verse 9 that something huge was still overlooked, and that is the Scriptures. You see that in verse 9? As yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Not only that Messiah would come and die, but that he would die and would be raised. We know Peter didn't get this because in, in Mark 8, when Jesus tells him, I'm going to Jerusalem, there I'll be flogged, I will be killed, and three days later I will rise, <laughs> Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, stop saying that. Uh, he pulls Jesus aside, he rebukes him. And Jesus says, man, you have your mind set on the things of man, not on the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. But Jesus completely, explicitly, clearly told them exactly what was about to happen. But what John is bringing up, but this was not a new thing that Jesus was saying. This had been being said in the scriptures. Now, the exact passage that's being referred to is not clear. It could be Hosea 6.2, where the Bible says on the third day, he will rise up that we may live before him. Perhaps it's the sign of Jonah that he was in the belly of the fish three days. Or, as David spoke in Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Is it that one? Is it that one? Is it that one? We say yes, yes, yes. They all fit the bill. But I don't think that John here is just talking about one passage, right? I think he's probably referring to the scope of Scripture, the teachings of Scripture, as a whole, Scripture taught that Messiah, to save people, would not only die for them, but rise for them. Scripture insists that the Christ die and yet live, that he pay for sins and be exalted to glory and remain. You see the same relationship being applied on the road to Emmaus in Luke 
24. So this is, again, after the resurrection. You have disciples. They're traveling on the road to Emmaus. Um, after um, Jesus walks up on two guys walking, and they're talking, and they're said to be sad. They're sad, walking around. Jesus comes up. He doesn't let them recognize who he is. Again, I don't know how he did that, but he is Jesus. But it's very similar to what happens in the passage with Mary. He's before them, but they can't recognize him. And Jesus says, what y'all talking about? And you remember how they answered him? In Luke 24, they said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Get this verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they're walking away sad because they previously thought Jesus was the redeemer, but the death canceled out their confidence that that was him. You remember how Jesus answered them, though? Now, these two disciples who are walking away sad, they heard about the women who said the, the tomb was empty, and they're still walking away sad. And Jesus rebukes them. He says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Indeed, the gospel isn't presented as an utterly new concept that showed up when Jesus showed up, but rather it's presented as the fulfillment of what God had been promising throughout the Bible. Paul says it this way, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the message that is of first importance, the gospel that I preach to you, the message in which you believe, you hold fast, and are being saved. And you remember how he presents it? He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So as Paul's preaching the gospel, he says, you know how I gave you the, this is the gospel according to the scriptures. This is the Christ who dies for his people's sins as has been promised in the scriptures. This is the Jesus who will be raised for our justification as had been promised in the scriptures. The scriptures call for a resurrection. The theme in John's gospel is to call forth faith in Jesus, to call all men to believe in Jesus in light of how he presents himself to examine his witnesses. You remember this in John 5. Jesus is claiming he's one with the Father. They want to kill him. He says, have you, have you seen my works? Have you listened to the witnesses? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and they're talking about me. No, no, the, the, the gospel of John is saying, no, no, use the Bible, use his works, use his word, and if you do, you will come to the only reasonable conclusion in God's eyes, and that is that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. There is not another possible conclusion if one has actually rightly evaluated the evidence you can come to. 
This is how Jesus can say, no, 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 no. The reason you don't believe in me is because I tell you the truth. Not because you didn't hear the truth. It's because I'm telling you the truth. You just don't like the truth. But the truth will bring you to me. I am the truth. This Jesus is the Son of God. And that life, true life, is exclusively available in him. And what would unravel that conclusion more, what would be the loudest contradiction to everything Christ had said, what would silence the mouth of the Son of God more than to find out he was brutally killed on a cross, died, was buried, and that was it? If the death of Christ were the final word about Jesus, there would be no reason to believe him. How could someone promise eternal life who himself remains dead? How can someone promise to satisfy the soul forever when they themselves don't live forever? Certainly if the death of Christ was the final word concerning Jesus, we're wasting our time this morning. We should be weeping like Mary or be sad like Cleopas and this other disciple walking that road to Emmaus. But what John is saying is, but there is a resurrection. It happened. It for real, for real happened. And God has given us evidence so that we know it. In our text, it's bringing us live footage at the scene of the empty tomb. First reporters, they're live, chronicling it for us. Because just as there were massive lies being brought against Jesus at his death, at his crucifixion, we find there are massive statements of truth being made about Jesus in the resurrection from God. This is why Romans 1, 4 puts it this way, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. God says, look at the evidence. The evidence of the resurrected Jesus points to the single conclusion that all must come to, to have life. And that is that Jesus was always telling the truth. He was exactly God's son as he claimed to be. And he really can say like he claimed he could. God gives us evidence for the resurrection, for our faith and our hope. And that evidence is intended to have an effect, which is our second point, the effect on the disciples. We're told in verse 8 that John, the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, you'll see that in chapter uh, 21, verse 24, um, we're told that John, the disciple that Jesus loved, wasn't just the first to the tomb, but he was the first here to believe. He saw and believed. He followed the evidence to its right conclusion. But it wasn't just John. We know that everybody ended up getting there, right? We see Mary's journey most chronicled here, though, this morning. We see her sorrow just evaporate at the revelation of Jesus. Notice there's nothing that seems to calm weeping Mary down. She's crying. 
She's crying when John and Peter come. She's crying to the angels. She's crying to Jesus when she thinks he was just the gardener. But what subdues all them sorrows? She comes to find out that it's him. At the beginning of the passage, she's weeping. After John and Peter leave, she's weeping. When the angels challenge her, she's still weeping. And their word to her, again, a soft rebuke. But she doesn't stop weeping before she understands Jesus had resurrected. She's weeping, both the angels and Jesus. They're saying, why are you crying when you shouldn't be? Sometimes that's an appropriate question to ask people. If that, those, that weeping is based in unbelief. But we see when it's revealed that Jesus is alive, that sorrow gets turned into joy. Jesus told them this would happen, John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And here Mary is turned from constant weeping into a confident witness because she leaves verse 18 and announced to disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then she told him what he said to tell them. Just as Jesus promised that the evidence of the resurrection comforted his disciples in their distress, it, it translated concern into comfort. It dramatically alters sorrow into joy. You remember as Paul was writing that letter to the Corinthians and they had it bad in Asia, so bad that they despaired, so bad that they despaired even of life itself. You remember what brought Paul comfort from the God of all comfort who comforts us in all affliction? He said this was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Because if your God raises the dead, what problems can overcome you? I mean, the thing that we most fear, most naturally, most normally, is dying. But what happens when your God conquers your dying? Well, that changes everything. There are sad things we must endure in this life. There are situations that will make us despair of even life itself, but there is a proof we have for hope. This is why the saints don't grieve as others grieve. We don't grieve without hope. There's a greater cause for rejoicing in any and every circumstance because the resurrection actually happened. Most Christians live like it's a fantasy when in fact it's essential to our faith. I mean, how often do you think about the resurrection every day? I can very easily just look at where I am. Look at what's happening to me. Look at what I'm doing. Be mindful of my own stupidity, mindful of my own failings, mindful of my own sin. But there's a resurrection. And the reason the resurrection changes everything because it stands as the permanent proof for the people of God that everything he promised is true. 
the resurrection evidence that Jesus can and should be entirely trusted in and believed in in all that he says and in all that he does. This is why Jesus says, whoever receives my testimony, he set his seal on this, that God is true. Mary's weeping here gets swallowed up in seeing the Lord. There's this sweet moment where Jesus says her name. And for whatever reason, that's what snaps her out of her unbelief. It's when he calls her by name that she gets it. You're talking, Jesus says, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, verse 15, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll come take him. She, she probably couldn't carry Jesus. This is emotion. This is, tell me where the body's. I want to come get him. She's weeping. She's weeping. She's weeping. She's She's, she's grieving over the fact her Lord is gone from her. And she's talking to him but doesn't know it. And then the moment of revelation we find is when he says, Mary. Mary. You see how she responds? Jesus says, Mary. She turns and says, Rabbanai! Much could be speculated as to why this happened, but perhaps the words of Christ are best at explaining it when he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We see this play out live. He's like, Mary, it's him. She heads back with clear sight and a comforted heart, and we find no other mention of weeping there for Mary. But instead, she's just confidently witnessing, I saw the Lord, and he got a message for y'all. This is what he does to all of us, yeah? He speaks to us, calls us by name. Gives us ears to hear, eyes that see. We start walking around talking about, I've seen the Lord, and he got a message for you. Uh, the, the effect the evidence is supposed to have is belief. By God's grace, they were brought to believe. And throughout this chapter, though, you really got to read it as a whole chapter, you get this buildup of people not initially getting it but being won over by the proof of the resurrection. And what we find is none of them are at the tomb waiting where they all should have been. And the ones who are there aren't there waiting, they're there weeping. And Jesus brings that resurrection on them, causes it to rise on them, and, and light overcomes their darkness. The disciples are scared, we're told, until Jesus shows up in the room. So, so after this, disciples in the room, it says they're afraid. They're afraid that the whole kingdom thing is over now. Their leader's dead. They're locked up in a room somewhere scared. And Jesus shows up. 
But we're told Thomas missed it. Talk about fear of missing out, right? Thomas isn't there. He didn't get to see the resurrected Lord. Comes back eight days later. Just showing up in a room. Jesus shows up to him, and that's where we get that famous section where the skeptic is won over by the evidence of the resurrection Lord. And we find it's different things for different people that convince them that Jesus is, in fact, resurrection. But the crescendo of the chapter all seems to come at the end of the passage, where in response to Thomas specifically, Jesus puts them all on blast. That's a slang way of saying Jesus basically exposes all their error. Because we might read this and be like, yeah, if Jesus showed up at the gas station today, I would believe in him. Well, you guys have been in John's gospel. You know, people who say that don't mean that. You got to love in John 6, Jesus is just fed thousands of people. And they're saying, do a sign and we will believe in you. We want manna from heaven. Jesus says, I am the manna. <laughs> it's not, they're not looking for a sign to believe because what it takes for someone to believe is not a sign. But as Jesus says, it's faith in what he said. Because a person who will believe the word of the Lord is the one that's evidence to be brought to that belief by God himself. It's a supernatural experience thoroughly. Nicodemus says, I want to be in the kingdom. Jesus says, something has to happen to you, man. Or you can't even see what's going on. People saw the signs, didn't believe. And here Jesus looking at Thomas. Thomas is like, I ain't going to believe until I touch him. He touches him. He says, I believe, Lord and Savior. And even as we read it, we're like, I mean, you don't really get a lot of credit for that. But what Jesus says next, is says, have you believed because you've seen me? This is the crescendo here. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Saint, do you believe in a resurrected Jesus? As I'm reading this, do you hear what Mary heard? The voice of your shepherd who's telling you truth telling you what happened. And you know his word is so true. It's as good as if you were there. This is how the righteous ones live. This is how the blessed ones are. Jesus says, this, the honor is not in, some saying, prove it to me, show me, let me touch and feel. No, no, the honor is in, his word is true. And I believe it. There, there, there's a greater belief available to us, a greater blessing. What we find is the essence of faith is not beholding with the eyes, but rather it's believing with the heart by faith. This is how Romans describes it. The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't got to see nothing. Indeed, none of us have saw anything. We weren't there when they crucified the Lord. We don't get to go in and investigate the tomb. We weren't there for anything to happen in this book. 
but we believe it all. And why do we believe it all? How do you explain that? I know I didn't see it, but I see it. How do you explain that in your heart you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Jesus says you've been blessed by God. You've been blessed by God to see his evidence as evidence. Faith discerns the evidence God provides and builds their life on it. Jesus used to ask him, who who do y'all say that I am? We give Peter a hard rap, and rightly so. Uh, He came through with a couple clutch moments. Yes, you're the son of God. Y'all got to that one in six, right? Y'all going to leave? He's like, where should we go? You're the eternal life word giver. Remember, Jesus said, who do you say they are? Some say Elijah, some say a prophet. He said, but I'm talking about you. When you hear about my death, when you hear about my resurrection, what do you say? That's what he asked us today. He asked Peter that then, who, who y'all think y'all walking with? Peter's like, you're the, you're the son of, you're the Christ, the son of God. You remember what Jesus told him? Blessed are you. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But you got given that by my Father. This is what Jesus is saying. There's a blessing. Those who are blessed are those who see and haven't seen. Who have not seen and believed. Uh, The effect this is supposed to have on us is to believe God's word. For his word always comes to pass. And it's, it's to encourage us, every word spoken against Jesus was false. Every word spoken by Jesus was true. It's, uh, you, you see this with Pharaoh? Remember his magicians and Moses, they're doing signs to show that the Lord's with them? And we see that the, the magicians was able to duplicate a few things. They did a little miracle, the little magicians did a little miracle. Moses did a miracle, the magicians did a little miracle. Moses did a miracle. The magicians did another miracle. You're like, man, who's telling the truth? But if you keep sticking with it, they have to tap out. The magic runs out, and it was over the gnats. Couldn't duplicate the gnats, could you? God had always been about silencing the room. Remember Elijah? Call out. Your God's not real. Call to him. He's probably using the bathroom. Keep going. They over there cutting themselves like, oh, they got the band. They got everything. They're making noise, clinging stuff. Do you hear us? He's like, keep going. Maybe he's taking a nap. But when it's Elijah's turn, God says, there ought to be no questions here. Elijah says, bring your, fill it with water. Like douse it in water. Again. Make sure that thing is dripping wet. And Elijah calls, and that fire comes down and licks it all up. Jesus ain't outdone by no Elijah. God says, okay, you want proof? You want proof? Everything, everything, absolutely everything I'm saying is, I'm going to send my son. He's going to die, and we're going to make sure you know he's dead. Three days dead. This isn't a long nap. This is dead, dead. 
And I'll bring him back. I'll bring him back. And I'll bring him back never to die again. We say, oh, you did that with Lazarus. No, they had another funeral for Lazarus. We don't know when that was. Lazarus didn't come back glorified. The Lord Jesus, though, tells them, Mary says, Rabbi, now he says, mm-mm. I'm ascending. You see at verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm back, and I'm back forever. I'm so back forever, you're going to watch me leave in a way you cannot fathom. There was no other funerals for Jesus. There never will be another funeral for Jesus. We're told that he ever lives above. The undying one, the resurrection and the life. Evidence he is the resurrection and the life. And this is to let us know all the promise Jesus, Jesus made to those who believe all of them to us. Our souls can rest with them and we should know that they will never be proven false. They'll all be shown true. So when, when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary in this sin, and I will give you rest. You should know as sure as he resurrected, he will give rest. When, whenever he says that, if we come to him, we'll never thirst again. We get to come knowing that as sure as that tomb is empty, we will never soul-wise thirst ever again. When he says, I will forgive you of all your sins, promises of pardon, promises of freedom, we know with the certainty of the resurrection that we will actually be forgiven fully and freely. All of his promise are proven to be true, proven to be valid, proven to be worthy of our confident expectation. The resurrection proves that God's people who hope in God's word will receive everything God promised to them. So, so one effect the resurrection should have is to encourage repentance for those who don't believe. For those of you who have not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, he wants you to have complete certainty that you will die and be judged. No exceptions. Some foolishly think that if their life ends, they will be excused from giving account for their sins. But one thing we find in this resurrected judge is that he resurrects people for judgment. There is nowhere to hide from his judgment, for even death cannot protect you. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And how are we to know that? Acts 17 says he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So if someone spurns the only sacrifice for sin, if someone rejects the death of the Son of God in their place, if someone disputes with God about their sin, death is not a servant for them at all. It's a bailiff that hauls them off to judgment. 
They'll die and they will know death sting. And they will find it utterly and eternally unbearable. Hebrews says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who makes all those who die live again. And God has brought us all here this morning to warn you, to tell you with confidence that he will judge all. And you can be as certain of it as that tomb is still empty. Everyone eventually will agree with God, we're told. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That he's Lord. Just like Jesus brought all these people to see and understand, there's an appointed day where all will agree with the Lord about the rightness of his judgment, the wrongness of their sin. But God would have no one here to fall into his hands as judge. He would desire for you to know not the sting of death, but the sweetness of salvation. And he sent his son to convince you of that. For God has so loved the world that he gave his very unique son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And we want to encourage you. We want to plead with you to turn from your sin that is destined to cost you forever and come to Christ who sets people free indeed. That's one effect it should have on, on those of us who might be here who do not believe in the Lord. That's why he wrote this gospel. That's why this church exists, so that people would come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, have life in his name. And if you are a Christian, one of the effects it's intended to have on you is it's supposed to excite you with what you expect. I wonder if Jesus' response to Mary seemed a little shocking to you. Like, she's like, Rabbanah! He's like, do not cling to me. What's happening? What Jesus senses in her, what he senses in us, and that's a clinging to things here. She sees Jesus back, she's like, okay, you never leaving again. She's like, I'm actually about to leave very soon. But this is not what I came for. I didn't come to give you life just down here. I didn't come to make this fallen world just the best for you. Right? He says, no, no, no. I have not ascended yet. I haven't ascended yet. I'm going to my father. Go and tell the brothers, say to them, he's ascending to our father. His father, our father. His God, our God. She seems so overwhelmed with joy at the now living Jesus before her. She's ready to cling to Jesus right there and never let go. And we say yay and amen. But she misses the big next step was the resurrection opens wide the door to the forever glory. That wasn't the plan for them just to be chilling down here in a dope situation down here. God had something better for her. God had something better for them. God has something better for us than just this. Praise God. 
Y'all's music is nice. Glory's music's better. Y'all have a dope preacher, better service leader in glory. You might have good days here. You'll have perfect ones there. You might have a couple moments of happiness that quickly evaporate into greater pools of sadness. There, unending joy in him. It's better. Remember, they said they were about to weep, and she said, it's better for you if I leave. It's not just that we can have Jesus here all our days on earth. Though we do, we get to have him all the days of forever. And Jesus says, look, Mary, I'm not now seated where it's best for you. The hope of eternal life is not living forever here in this fallen society, but in the new heavens and the new earth. It's living forever there, where God is, being with him in God's presence. It's there and there only where there's fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore at his right hand. In Jesus, God's come down to man in our sin in order to bring us up to him in glory. It's in glory that the dwelling place of God is with man most fulfilled. The eternal life is most experienced there. Where our sin doesn't hinder us. Where our flesh doesn't hinder us. But we get to be like him. This is why Paul said, listen, if you've been raised with Christ, don't cling to down here. Seek the things above where he is now. Keep your eye fixed there where he is now. Knowing that he who is your life, when he appears, you will then appear with him in glory. In Christ's resurrection, he made death a servant for all of his people. Your greatest enemy becomes one of your best friends because it brings you to the best one that you long to be. This is why it's called a foretaste, right? Jesus says, I haven't ascended yet. It should have recalled to their minds what he told them in John 14. Remember before he went to the cross, he said, Listen, y'all, we know the wisdom of Jesus because he's God, but we can see how much he knows us based on what he tells us to look for because of how often we don't look for it. John 14, remember he says, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way I'm going. Saying, is there anywhere else you want to be? Is there anywhere else you long more to go than to our Father's house? Jesus said, Mary. Tell the brethren, I'm going home to get it ready. Which is supposed to provoke in them. That means he'll be coming soon for all of us.
Our Father, we pray that you would help this, uh, this good news to, to change us and this resurrection to encourage us. We know that for the apostles, it, it turned cowards into the courageous preachers. We know that for Mary, it turns weeping into joy and confidence. And Lord, we pray it would have a transforming effect on us too. That you would help us to eye that resurrection. That we might say with Paul, we know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, being found in him, not with the righteousness of our own, but his. And that we would do anything. We want to share in his suffering, become likened in his death, that by any means we might attain the resurrection. It's his name we pray.